Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight the incredible thought leaders and personalities in our community and discover who they are at home, at work, and in between. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Hello, I'm your host, Sam East, and welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast. Our guest today is extremely impressive. Dr. Kathleen Dippel, a research scientist with the Air Force Research Laboratories Munitions Directorate at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. A first-generation undergraduate student, she earned her bachelor's degree from Appalachian State University and received her PhD from the Nanoscale Science Program at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She completed her postdoctoral work holding a provisional patent in the nature-inspired section at AFRL's Munitions Directorate through the National Research Council Associateship Program. To answer an Air Force need, she tackled a whole new discipline and started civilian service as an alternative navigation research scientist in the Algorithm Development and Cyber Assurance section. While still in the early years of her career, Dr. Dipple has received numerous awards, including one for Best Presentation at the 2022 International Conference on Unmanned Aircraft Systems. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Dipple. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let's get right into it. You work at the Air Force Research Laboratory, which is referred to as AFRL in Florida as a research engineer, but before we get into the nitty gritty of your title, can you tell us exactly what AFRL is? Sure. So we're actually a scientific research organization supporting not just the U.S. Air Force, but now the U.S. Space Force as well. It is a really cool, unique job because we're not actually motivated by profit like other companies. Mm. The whole goal here is to deliver technologies to the Air Force and Space Force with the end user being the warfighter. And I mean, this is such an interesting industry to be working in. What originally drew you to work specifically at AFRL? So I was actually applying to a bunch of different summer internships when I was a grad student. And I saw this program called the AFRL Scholars Program, and it's this really cool 10-week summer internship where you actually get to go and work there and work on a summer project. And they, a part of that is like you get to tour like all the really cool facilities within AFRL, which is normally pretty exclusive. I don't think, you know, that's normally available to people. And like once I did that, I knew that this is the job for me. This is so cool. Yeah. And currently you are in a career broadening opportunity with AFRL. Can you tell us what that day-to-day looks like for you? You are a research scientist. I mean, I would venture to say a lot of us don't know what that life looks like. Right. So as a research scientist, you know, I was able to work with a bunch of different universities and industry partners, like with the goal of alternative navigation, research science. And I was able to actually do my own research as well. But now that I'm in this really cool career broadening position, I'm in headquarters at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
and I'm the war room integration lead. So the goal there is completely different than, you know, research scientists. I'm there to provide situational awareness of key enterprise events to AFRL leadership, including, you know, the front office group and directors and really try and facilitate messaging alignment among leadership. So it's completely out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm not used to this at all, but I'm learning so much about how the organization and enterprise works. And I'm, you know, I'm loving it. And I think I'm going to be better for it. You know, a better scientist for it later. I've heard that, you know, a major part of the work that you do surrounds novel navigation technologies. Can you explain, can you get into what those are and why they're so important to the Department of the Air Force? Sure, I'd love to. So current navigation methods, unfortunately, are really vulnerable to jamming and electronic attacks, but they're also very vulnerable to limited site situations, kind of like how the late Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash occurred where the pilot became disoriented by the clouds. Alternative navigation, certain signals actually can see through clouds, like certain types of radar. So the goal of our work overall is to exploit signals that are hard to fake. It's hard for you know, our adversaries to mess up. They can work day or night through all weather. And examples of this are like certain types of radar, synthetic aperture radar, or even using celestial bodies to navigate, which is super cool. So what are the goals of your research in particular with navigation technologies? So what we want to do is actually exploit and use signals other than GPS. We don't want to have to rely on GPS because kind of like I said before, you know, other people, other countries can jam or make us feel like we're somewhere that we're not and mess with our aircraft and pilots. So what we want to do is exploit other signals and be able to use multiple different types of signals so that we have the highest precision and accuracy with where the aircraft is. And, you know, speaking of your current work, you just recently presented at the International Conference on Unmanned Aircraft Systems. Can you break down, can you discuss what that research was that you discussed? Sure. So the presentation title is Ross Geo-Registration Aerial Multispectral Imaging Simulator for the Robot Operating System. Okay, it's a crazy name. <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> At the end of the day, it turns out researching alt-nav is very difficult because there's not a lot of data out there and it's really expensive to go do flight tests and test your algorithms. Also, it's really hard to get on the schedule for flight testing. So it's a slow kind of, it's not a new field, but it's slow and it's, it's hard to do. So what we did is we accomplished linking a UAV flight simulator where it completely simulates a UAV and like what each of the cameras see on the ground to the entire image database of Google Earth. So we have a ton of data and we have a very accurate you know, flight simulator to kind of model and simulate your navigation capabilities. So what you can do is you can actually test different algorithms or test different ways of doing alternative navigation in this system. So what, you know, the hopes of this research or what we presented is, is that it's going to allow alt-nav research and not just for our group, but many other groups to progress most, much faster than they would otherwise. Do you get to actually test out the flight simulator? Because that sounds really amazing. Yes, it's so cool. Like I can make it fly over my house 
you know, because of course has, you know, my house. (laughs) It's just fun to mess around with it. But yeah, you can. It sounds like next level gaming, to be honest with you, for those of us who aren't as uh, aren't as expert level as you are. No, it does feel like a video game. I love video games. So it'd be really cool to like do that in VR. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. From that presentation that you were at when you were talking at the International Conference on Unmanned Aircraft Systems, what do you hope people at the conference left with? Because it's a lot of information to take in. Yeah. I really hope they left with knowing that this resource, this flight simulator resource for alt-nav research is available and they can tell their colleagues and we can kind of progress alt-navigation research as a whole. So I'm just hoping people know that this resource is free, it's available, it's open source, and that, you know, a lot of people can use this. Mm -hmm. You know, stepping back from the day-to-day of your career, can we go back to the beginning? Where did your love of science and technology originally start? We want to hear the origin story. Okay. So I've always been super nerdy, like even as a kid and I was into magic and I just loved being able to like trick people's eyes and like know the secret behind the magic. And in my first chemistry class ever in high school, we got to see a bunch of different demos, chemistry demos that blew my mind, like little experiments like elephant toothpaste or the iodine clock reaction. Mm -hmm. And it it looked like magic. It really did. And I wanted to know the trick behind it. So I got super into chemistry and science and the rest is history. And then how did that, because there's a lot of kids, of course, who have that young interest that starts in school with science and and technology, like you mentioned with chemistry, but how did this particular interest of yours in science parlay translate into the field of navigation that you're in right now? Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because I started as a chemist and then I became a nanoscale scientist. I worked in the nature-inspired research lab, which was pretty related because I use nanoparticles. And then there was the slot open for alternative navigation research scientists. And I started doing a bunch of back research and I took a class and I, I learned a lot about it, you know, just to fill that need and to honestly get a job, a secure job there. Mm-hmm. I love learning different things. And that's kind of why I'm in this career broadening position now, because I get to learn about a whole new area. Somebody's probably listening to this and you've piqued their interest with this career path, this journey that you've been on, because it's quite the unique one. What are some of the key opportunities that you really grabbed onto throughout this journey that helped you get to where you are today? Yeah. So I think my first and most important one was the AFRL summer internship, because it gave me the confidence and the knowledge I needed to go forward and, you know, have a career here. Mm Mm-hmm. At the time, I was in North Carolina. I had an apartment lease. I was a very poor, you know, grad student, and I had tons to do. And I was also kind of nervous about going to a bunch of states away, you know, far from home by myself. But I decided to just do it. And I'm so glad I did, because that's why I'm here today. And uh, the other thing that I did was I secured a civil service position by taking an alternative navigation research spot which was completely out of my realm. It was out of my comfort zone. 
but I kind of fired up on all cylinders and I got caught up to speed in the field and I got to learn a lot of awesome stuff and meet a lot of great people. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the takeaway for that is growth is outside of your comfort zone, right? Yeah. And that's something that I hope everyone listening tries to do in their life. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that on this path that you've been on, there's been some hurdles that you've had to overcome to get to where you are. Can you lay those out for us? Because it's always everybody always likes to hear how you overcame those obstacles. Right. So I'm sure I'll have a lot more in the future, which is <laughs> natural. <laughs> yes. But, you know, as a young, quote, young, I'm 29 and I have a doctorate and I have a career in science. So I'm a young, I guess, woman in science. And I'm also a first generation college student. So imposter syndrome at school and work has always been really hard for me. And it still is. And then this is something that people don't really talk about. But on the flip side is like, you feel kind of out of place among like my old high school friends and sometimes my family at first. It can be a little bit alienating. Mm. And then, of course, I'm also gay and I'm married to a woman, which can also kind of be a little cherry on top of a little bit more alienating at work. It can be because you always have to come out to people because whether you like it or not, your whole being is at work. You know, it's not like people like people talk about their lives at work. So you have to come out and it's it can be stressful. So I've overcome kind of all of these issues by seeking out support. So I just joined this awesome AFRL LGBTQIA plus resource group. Or I've already met some really cool people and we're actually starting to plan a pride fun run 5k at Wright Patterson. So if you're around on June 2nd, come run with us. Oh, that is incredible because I'm sure a lot of people who are facing similar, you know, obstacles now, they just want to find that community. Cause like you said, it can be alienating when you feel like you're the only one who identifies as such. So it's really incredible to hear that you are building that community within the space that you work in. Cause like you said, work is such a big part of your life. Right. There's also AFWISE, which is the Air Force Women in Science and Engineering group. And that's awesome too, because, you know, we are women, there's women are outnumbered here. <laughs> in general, in science and engineering. So it's awesome. So when it came to my family and my friends, kind of feeling a little odd there because it's hard to communicate what you do and what you got my, what I got my PhD in. Mm -hmm. What I did is I learned scientific communication, which is awesome and really difficult, but it's great for my career anyways. So, you know, everyone trusted me and they asked me a lot of questions about what I was doing and I kind of learned how to explain what I did without being condescending Mm. and without talking over people's heads, which is, was hard. Yes. Because as we've learned in this short podcast alone, there's a lot of complicated things that you have a lot of expertise on. So what exactly is science communication? I'm curious about that. Is it, excuse my ignorance on it, but is it a program that you took or class or something? What exactly is science communication? Oh, I just mean being able to effectively communicate hard topics. Like Mm. I was working with nanoparticles and I had to kind of explain what they were, what they looked like, why they were special, you know, to people that don't have necessarily the same background as I do. Right. Right. Okay. And then that helps. I mean, especially just on a day-to-day personal 
interpersonal basis with your family and friends who are not in the field. Exactly. Like I love my work. I love my work currently and I really loved my work then too. And Mm -hmm. it's important to be able to share the work that you love with the people you love. Yes, that is so, so key. Did you have a mentor that guided you along your journey so far? Yes, I've had so many mentors, like at every step in my career. Like as soon as I started here, we have this program where you can actually request to be matched with mentors. Like you can choose if you care about the gender or if you care about if they're in your chain of command. And I was matched with two individuals who are incredible and they've helped me so much with just kind of getting the lay of the land because I've never, like, I don't, my family members have never even stepped foot on a military base before and neither had I. So there was a lot to learn. There was a whole acronym alphabet to learn and I'm still learning. So. Yeah. It's it's so important to have those figures in your life who can help guide you no matter how much expertise you grow in along the way. Before we end things here with you, Dr. Dipple, there's going to be a lot of young researchers who will be following a similar career path. Like I said, you may have piqued their interest in this. What advice would you pass on to those young researchers? It's okay if you're the first or if, you know, you feel like you don't necessarily belong in this situation, but, you know, your scientific interest leads you here. Be that first person. Trust your gut. And definitely right away, as soon as you can, find a mentor and support, different avenues of support. And then the last one that I wish I could tell my younger self is don't take stuff personally. Like Mm. most of the time, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with them. That is some sage advice right there. And I, I love what you said because you're encouraging people to be a trailblazer just like you. This is just a cool story. So I was like at, I think I was uh, at a potluck or something, but I had a former Air Force scientist who was, you know, recently retired, kind of tell me about how he was casually talking about his old research to a group of guys. And one of them came up to him and said that it saved his life. Wow. So his research that he had done really early in his career transitioned to the warfighter and had the time to save lives. And that's so cool. Like how many people in their jobs can say that? And like, what a cool legacy to be able to leave. And that's mm-hmm. something I totally strive for. Yeah, because you can get in the day-to-day hustle and grit of what you're going through. You might not realize the impact of your work, but then once in a while you go to a potluck and you hear a story like that and it puts things into perspective. Absolutely. The big picture is like what gets me up in the morning. And like, I need that to be able to feel like motivation. I can't just like get up and just do work for the sake of work. Right. There's purpose behind what you do and intentionality. Exactly. There's a lot of young researchers that are listening to your story right now, feeling very inspired. I'm sure. What messages would you pass on to them? I would say it's mentally very hard to get a doctorate. Mm -hmm. You're constantly failing. And it's okay. Or even just applying for things. You're constantly getting rejected. It's okay. You know, you're going to get that one acceptance eventually. So a big thing that helped me was seeking out mental health counseling. And there's no shame in that. If you feel that you need support in that way, please go. That's helped me so much. And I don't even know if I could have finished 
without having that support in grad school. And most of the time it's free in grad school. You know what? I bet a lot of people might not know that that resource is available to them. And there's a lot of people who struggle with that. And there's no, like you said, no, no shame in it, no stigma whatsoever. We got to break that stigma. Yes, definitely. Dr. Dipple, oh my goodness. So just impressed by everything that you do and what you stand for. And thank you again for taking the time to, to speak with us today and, and share stories from your path so far. You've got so much more ahead of you too. Yeah, I'm so excited to see where my career goes. We are too. We will be watching. Thank you so much, Dr. Dipple. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Sam East. For all of us at SWE, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your social network. You can keep up to date with our podcast on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast and on our blog, altogether at altogether.swe.org. <laughs>